This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hi, my name is Kakea, and I'm a junior at Ware. I initially joined Wea through a friend who was a seventh grader at the time. Wea's dynamic curriculum teaches students about problem solving, advocacy, and responsibility through hands-on projects. Wea allows students to design their educational experience by integrating traditional subjects into collaborative projects as opposed to learning by textbook. Throughout my years in middle school and high school, Wea has equipped me with the tools to become a leader both in my school and in my community. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Eric Swenson, the student service coordinator and project teacher at West Hawaii Explorations Academy Public Charter School fondly known in Hawaii as Wea. Eric describes himself as an analytical, data-driven, critical thinker with a diverse skill set applicable in varied educational settings. He sees himself as a big picture thinker with a bias towards practical action. He endorses a procedural-based theology, loves project-based learning and authentic assessments, and is devoted to student needs and providing equitable access to learning for all. He also describes himself as environmentally conscious with a deep understanding of Hawaii's aquatic environment gained from years of experience. So what is West Hawaii Explorations Academy? Wea began when a Hawaii Island high school teacher built a famous solar car team that raced across Australia, the continental US, and Europe. From that experience came first a school within a school And then, in the year 2000, the chartering of Wea as a public startup Hawaii Island School. Ben Owens at Open Way Learning said the following, and I quote, It's not difficult to recognize that Wea is a genuinely unique school. How many schools, for example, have their own working shark tank or direct access to deep ocean water for student research? How many have a flexible, open-air classroom structure that enables the kind of outdoor exploration that is core to their commitment to the environment? And how many have embraced their local culture, customs, and language to be an intentional and integral part of the school's character? These are the kinds of things one immediately sees when spending time on the Wea campus. What I and my colleagues have also had the privilege of seeing while working with Wea are the intangible characteristics that make the school truly unique. Their deep commitment to collaboration across traditional curricular or grade level boundaries, a passion for interdisciplinary and community facing project based learning, a school culture that welcomes ideas from new teachers and staff, and a willingness to not just listen to student voice, but to use it as a primary driver for local decision-making from the classroom level to the school policy level. Of course, 
Like any school, there are growing pains and problems that one can also recognize. Even so, the school's willingness to not just rely on what it's done well in the past leads it to do the hard work to self-assess and continually improve how it can be true to its mission through collective efficacy across their learning community is something that makes the West Hawaii Explorations Academy truly unique. And now, here is my conversation with Eric Swenson at WEA. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Well, Josh, thanks for having me. So, Eric, you shared with me that you attended three high schools over four years, two in Florida, one in California. And my guess is that you have some strong feelings about this. So without getting too personal, I wonder to what extent moving between these schools and all the challenges associated with this kind of disruption possibly resulted in some silver linings related to resiliency and the ability to read and adapt to new situations? And if yes, to what extent did these experiences end up shaping you as an educator? That's a great question. I do believe there were some silver linings, although at the time, of course, as a teenager, the last thing you want to do is uproot yourself and move to several different high school and have to establish different friend groups and and blend in. But as you said, it forces you to mesh and adapt socially as well as academically. And, you know, bi-coastal, that was a real shock for me. (laughs) But (laughs) I I feel it, it allowed me to develop some skills that that I didn't appreciate at the time, but later on in life, I started to realize, oh, wow, I actually have a foundational skill set here that's applicable in the vocational setting as I moved around as an adult. And then now I can utilize that to connect with certain students, Mm. especially ones, you know, we have students come in and out of our, our school system We have students popping in and out from different schools to attend. You know, they're on the waiting list. They get in or they do not. They move back and forth from other schools. And it really allows me to connect with them on a a level that maybe some other educators aren't aren't able to. Mm. You know, as a high schooler, and this was true for me as well, and, you know, my wife actually, as the child of military parents, actually ended up going to four high schools in four years. So she and I have had many conversations about this over the years. But, you know, as a almost actualized adult, as a high schooler, you get pretty aware about things. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the bicoastal thing. Like, to what extent were you, like, really reading the differences between Florida and California? And, like, how is that playing out for you as a kid? Wow. Yeah. You want to talk about two ends, <laughs> two opposing ends of the spectrum. Yeah. You know, North Central Atlantic Coast, Florida versus Southern California. Very, very different. But I do feel that each still lives and inside, resides inside me to this day. Mm. And everything I've learned from each, I, I can 
utilize in my daily life. But at the time, it was very shocking, whether it be political, the school's approach, obviously the weather. I don't know if anybody's ever felt the East Coast humidity <laughs> in, the, in the South, but that'll, that'll slap you in the face yeah. every day you wake up. And then you, you move over to the coastal Southern California and you know you have cool ocean breezes, definitely a different lifestyle, also much more diverse. So that, that was what I really grasped between the, the two differences of each locale, mm. the diversity on the West Coast. That really helped me help shape my hmm. my morals, the way I approach life today. Right. The broadening of your horizons, which makes me wonder, you know, there are many educators in the world, and this is, I'm not disrespecting them, but who, you know, were born and raised in that particular location and never really lived anywhere else. And I've thought a lot about this, and I've had many conversations with previous podcast guests about ways that educators can expand their horizons so that that kind of diversity that you're describing can come into their teaching, you know, that they've been places, they've lived other places, they've traveled to other places at least, and that that really makes a difference as an educator. And it sounds like that's that's true for you. Yeah, it really does. If you step out of your comfort zone, everybody... Everybody's strong and can thrive in the in an area where they're comfortable and they know everybody or everybody looks like them and talks like them. Yeah. As soon as you step out of that, everything you look at slightly changes. And you know, you can either adapt or you can fold. And within that, you'll, you know, I, I felt I became a stronger person. Mm. And then and then, you know, eventually moving on to to Hawaii, that that helped me. Yeah. Navigate everywhere I, I've been since then. Right. Completely different environment, right? And and ever increasing diversity of the culture. So that's great. So Eric, you listed several books as influential in your life, including works by Jane Goodall, Rachel Carson, Wilson Rawls, and Jack London. And the one I want to ask about is titled what you should know about sharks by ocean ramsey <laughs> and she's a pretty famous marine biologist and swimmer with sharks and youtuber and in what ways is the ocean eric an element of your life and how has your time in the ocean shaped you as a teacher a guide a mentor a coach of young people in all of your pursuits but also at west hawaii explorations academy so i just have to go a little further back but Mm. I grew up in Volusia County, Florida. It's the shark bite capital of the world still to this day. And my experiences in the water were terrifying, mm. although they paralleled a intrinsic beauty and appreciation. And then moving on to California, similarly, I had some terrifying experiences, but also gratifying, fell in love with it. And when I attended the University of Hawaii, Manoa, I began exploring the North Shore of Oahu, mm -hmm. where o Ocean practices, and she has her boat company out there, where they, they do a uh, shark dive outside of Haleiwa. Right. And what I really appreciate about her writing and her work is all the time her and her husband, Juan, have spent in the field applying their techniques and not only just observing shark behavior, but adapting their body language and attempt to read 
the sharks. Mm. And I was able to identify with that because on accident, I had explored different body language and messaging to sharks in my attempt to converse with them in the water. And I really aligned with what her and her husband were doing throughout that book. And what I attempt to bring to students as an educator, Mm. it's whether it's the land, the water, just an appreciation of the natural environment Mm. through simple pleasures, whether it's just observing the winds blowing in. It's very interesting to me. And I think it's wrapped up in our daily lives. And sometimes we just don't take a minute to sit back and and appreciate it. And look, Mm. every morning I I drive to school, I stare at two mountains, one above 8,000 feet and another one over 13,000 feet. And it's gorgeous. And and every day I take that moment and I look up there and I just, I I appreciate that quick jaunt to school. Mm. You know, it's so fascinating, Eric. I've had so many conversations with previous guests about this notion of reading the world. It actually came up in the context of literacy and some warnings about trying to force kids to read too early and that helping them to just read the world in all of its complexity is really kind of the way to get them to build their curiosity and their inquiry. And I'd love what you're talking about in terms of like that reading of the environment that you're in. In your case, it's swimming you know, with sharks and noticing what ocean is doing. And and I hadn't thought of it that way. I watched way too many YouTube videos in preparation for today of her in the water (laughs) with sharks, you know, but you're right. I mean, she's adapting herself to the environment that she's in. And that's just like super interesting, right? I mean, it's just, it's wild. And I think it's applicable no matter where you are. Yeah. Whether you're you're attending a new high school, yeah. whether you're <laughs> you're you're walking into a, an office party with your spouse, whether you're navigating some sort of sports environment, a new school, everywhere, it's it's a you, you have to adapt, especially in the environment. And I and I really respect somebody who's able to go. You know, we're an alien in the in the ocean. Yeah, we, we don't we don't naturally belong there, but everybody that does partake in the aquatic realm has learned to adapt, learn to apply different skills that they've, they've developed over the years. And some are, are simply by mistake, but through it, through that trial and error, you gain a, a respect, a, a respect of the larger world. Yeah. And it's really easy to lay that upon students, you know, that are experiencing it as well. I mean, let's face it, where we live, we're surrounded by the ocean. Yeah. Students, in one way or another, whether they like it or not, they've experienced the ocean. Yeah. So they, they can understand what you're trying to explain. And in fact, I can share with you, Eric, that in the process of preparing for today, which has been a couple of weeks, I had an experience in the ocean a couple of days ago where I actually learned from you. 20 years, I've been swimming in the open ocean in the morning as part of my exercise off of Waikiki, and I've, I've never seen a shark until last week when a relatively large, maybe six foot reef shark went by me off in the distance. And I recall just kind of working my way through that reading situation. What is the situation? What am I looking at? Does, is there anything here? And it just felt very natural. And I just kept on going. It just, it went by me and disappeared and I kept on going and I thought, wow, there you go. <laughs> so thank you. You helped me to work through that situation. I appreciate it. 
Right. And, and afterwards, I hope you, you, you know, you're able to, to reflect on that yeah. moment and say, you know, that was a, that was a positive experience with something that the media, you know, has taught me to actually be afraid of. Right. Right. Which is Ocean's point. And what she right. keeps saying in her public speeches over and over again is the media is what puts us in that situation. And, and Eric, you're darn right. I've been thinking about it ever since, you know, there's not a minute that goes by where I don't think about that encounter last week, which is kind of yeah, a cool feeling. Yeah. <laughs> can I, can I just give you one, one yeah. stat, the students and I love, we, we love to, to convey this message, you know, obviously more more sharks are killed by humans than humans killed by sharks per year. But there's several other areas such as coconuts kill more people than sharks, <laughs> right. dogs, bees. But the one the one that my students really love, and I and I hope they're they're gonna listen to this, is that actually vending machines. Yes. Wow. Vending machines kill. <laughs> you know, you shake the vending machine to get your uh, Doritos or your Snickers bar and can topple over you. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's unbelievable. Uh, I'm going to carry that one with me. I'll use it at yeah. some point in the future. That's great. So, Eric, it, it has been hugely interesting to me to learn about where educators spend their time outside of their classrooms, their campuses, and their hours teaching. And you've done marine debris collection, lionfish eradication, water sample collection. I'm sure there's many other things. You know, each educator does this kind of, quote, outside work for their own special reasons. So what's your personal vision and mission behind your service to your community beyond your teaching day? And what are the big questions coming out of this service that you bring to your work with your young people? So as, as we've touched, you know, just developed an appreciation for the natural environment over the years, and through that, you know, I consider myself a steward of, of the environment. And so my mission is to model and practice environmental behavior, you know, whether that's simply trying to not use any, any plastic, especially single-use plastic, which ends up in our, our marine environment. But as a consumer, any purchases that I can make, and both, I, I'm really supported by my wife in this. She, we, we align Mm-hmm. in this philosophy, but our mission is to simply control our choices as best possible mm-hmm. in our willingness to, to take an environmental route or make green choices you know, through, through modeling, but maybe I can influence them to make some change. Because what it, what it is, is they have to have the willingness to change to make a green choice. And unfortunately, you have to have the willingness to pay for it because it does cost a little bit more. But it's really different when you start to look at dryer sheets in an environmental way and through mm. your consumer purchasing. Mm. So, but what questions that brings to me for and onward to my students would be, can we overcome convenience? Mm. And how can I approach this effectively with students you know, not to drown them with the doom and gloom of, you know, my generation is going to leave you this big mess. Right. So without doing that, 
how can I relate to them? Am I able to? That simple little choices can add up to make a significant change. Mm-hmm. And they can start within their own home or their school, you know, and then they can move outward into their the larger community and then the islands and, mm-hmm. and then wherever else they go. Yeah, that's just that's so interesting. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you not preach to them? How do you not kind of force things down their throat? How do you build an environment of wonder and and inquiry, but at the same time, you do want them to head in a particular direction. And I wonder if you have, if you can describe maybe even a single technique that you've used to try to help that to happen with your students. So what I've found is it's one of my major philosophies and it's, it's relationship rapport base connecting with students. And what I found is I have a lot of conversations with students outside of academics, outside Mm. of assignments, lessons, content. Yeah. But you can spin those back towards a concept related to an area of their learning. And a lot of times students and I will, will, will talk about the plastic tops on our hydro flasks and, Mm. Does that defeat the purpose of the hydro flask? And, and yeah. then we get into, you know, the volume of plastic that it takes to make the, the plastic top for your hydro flask versus a, a single use bottle. And then, and then we can spin that into an engineering discussion of, well, can we make these tops, these plastic tops out of recycled plastics? And that, that's where we get into the, the way away of, of projects. But mm-hmm. you're right, it is, it, it's very difficult not to, to drown them with the end of the world and doom and gloom, but rather kind of incite, spark that inner inquiry about the world, the environment, projects, what they can do. Yeah. And if I can dangle that in front of them through simple conversation. So to answer your question, Josh, just... Get to know your students, talk, yeah, to your, right. t- talk to your kids. And if you're not just the single authority of their assignments, yeah. they, they, they tend to, to listen a little bit more and they, and they watch you. And so yeah. through that, I can, I can model environmental behavior and hopefully, hopefully it catches on. I love that. I love the idea, the metaphor of dangling things in front of your kids. I think that that's awesome. And I and I we're going to get into this quite a bit more after the break, but just the notion of really getting to know them because we suspect, don't we, Eric, that they're already thinking about this stuff. It's all over the media. It's everywhere that you go. So of course they're thinking about it. So then it's just how do you engage them in that thinking? And you do that through conversations with your kids. And it's just such a simple idea. So I love that. That's really great. So Eric, before we go to break, and we're going to go kind of backwards in time for a second here, but I still you know, want our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. You were a West Hawaii District Special Education Autism Specialist from 2008 to 2016, which meant you designed individual student education plans and collected data and, and all that that kind of work entails. So what brought you to that work with learners with autism? And in what ways did those eight years like shape you as a person, as an educator, as a community member? I actually fell into that field and then naturally picked up based on my prior work with animal behavior. Mm. And what I, what I found was that 
most of the students I was working with and working with educators to connect with those students, a lot of the difficulties came with miscommunication. So similarly, I'm always going to bring this back to to fish and sharks, but similarly, (laughs) a lot of what I found was a lot of us weren't able to effectively communicate Mm. with students on the autism spectrum. And what I found was if I was able to interpret, decipher, and find visual means to communicate better, we were able to close communication gaps within the learning day. Mm. And then I watched it slowly change the students' perception of their school day. And I actually started to see some smiles. Mm. And then we actually started to educate and convey some some learning opportunities that they were able to grab on. And it really transformed the way I look at all students. Mm. One teacher I work with, her and I will, will talk about the tools we used to use and how a lot of them are very applicable and appropriate for all students. And, and so we, we continue to utilize some of the tools that we were using in special education mm. with all of our students it's really shaped and really guided me in the, in the direction on, again, going back to conversations, right. how to communicate effectively. And what I found is through effective communication, we're able to really reach students no matter where they are in their day. They might arrive to school in the morning with a smile and throughout the day, something happens socially that turns that upside down. And throughout that day, you have to be able to read them and Mm. communicate. And so I found through my work with less verbal students that we were able to use body language, cues, and and visuals in the moment in order to reach students. That's really neat, Eric. And I'll share that one of my previous guests on this podcast, Robert Landau, who's, good Lord, 40 years as a progressive educator, both nationally and internationally, he shared with me the other night that he's serving as a substitute teacher in the Hawaii Department of Education. And he got called into an elementary school nearby where he lives. And it turned out he didn't know this going in, but that he was going to be in a special education class for the whole day. And he described to me this marvelous thing that you've just, you know, kind of described to me, which is a moment where you you kind of read the room really quickly. You read the situation that you're in. And then he just worked to build relationships with the kids all day long. And he used it through music because he's a bit of a musician. So he brought his guitar with him and he just started playing songs and the kids really responded. And I was just mesmerized by listening to him describe that situation. And I think it's also an equity question as well. It means that you, you provide everything to kids, no matter where they are, and no matter what situation they're in. Everyone has their dignity in the world. Everybody is a learner. Everybody has wonder and inquiry, right? And I think that that's really cool. That's just an awesome part of your experience, if you will. Yeah, you asked me what I learned and what I bring from my transferring from three different high schools to to my approach in education today. And that's part of it. That's reading the room and adapting. And students will communicate more non-verbally than verbally. Right. And (laughs) and so being able to read that, you'll be able to 
more effectively convey your message and pick when and where to strike, maybe mold more to the social emotional aspect of your lesson. Right. And it really benefits everybody as a whole. Yeah, that's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Eric Swenson. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, my name is Ethan and I attend WEA as an 11th grade student. I initially decided to go to this school as a sixth grader because of the awesome projects that I saw. Now I see that this school presents amazing opportunities within the local and the scientific community. Over the years, I have found that this school's educational experience is really what you make it. So if you want to learn more about something, our teachers will get you there if you show the interest. In my opinion, this is what makes the school great. Hey everyone, we are back with Eric Swenson, the Student Service Coordinator and Project Teacher at West Hawaii Explorations Academy, otherwise known as WEA. So Eric, you shared with me 92 written words that represent your philosophy of education thus far in your life. And I want to ask a couple of questions about what you wrote. And this kind of goes beyond what we've been talking about so far, it goes a little bit deeper maybe. So first, You talk about how establishing a relationship with your students and their families precedes your branching outward to include progressivism and constructivism theories of education. So the question is, what do you mean by that? And why are relationships the critical first step before you go further? So as a student, I found without a connection to someone who's attempting to teach me, I really was just jumping through hoops. Yeah, I was really taking notes, trying to memorize something, and hopefully I could regurgitate that on a, on a test and, and, and get a passing grade. And what I've found is that if I'm able to connect with students on a more meaningful 
connection rather than just what I'm attempting to teach them, I found that they'll open their ears a little more. They'll pay a little more attention. They'll look at me. They'll participate more. And I can actually ask of them Mm. a little bit more. And my wife always says, well, you just talk to them like they're humans. (laughs) And at the time I was like, okay, hon. But but now I, I look at that and I say, oh, you, you know, that that's actually, there's something to that. Whereas I'm not this authoritative figure standing over them. There's a lot into that nonverbal communication, you know, eye level, bringing it down, meeting them their level. And, and I found that by doing that, parents have also seen the way I interact with their students mm-hmm. and, and appreciate that. And they know that I serve them. Mm-hmm. We're, in, we're in the customer service industry. We are. <laughs> My objective is to is to serve them education on a platter and you know hope, hopefully they'll eat it up and digest all of it and we can move on to the next meal. Mm. But I I strongly feel that by connecting with the family and and you know through through email, through parking lot conversation, any anywhere and sometimes I find it it really just takes a couple minutes out of your day. Right to establish that. And at first, some, some parents or, or students, they'll have the, they might have the wall up, but you can respect that and keep your distance. But also I found that by uh, being a little persistent, mm-hmm. you know, you can overcome that and, and really establish a relationship that lasts a long time. Yeah. That's awesome. I remember Eric early in my teaching career, I wrote a personal kind of handwritten note home to a kid's father in which I said, you know, just very simply, I'm, he's he's very impressive and I think he's emerging as a scholar. And then like a week later, I saw the father marching across campus towards me and man, he looked mad as hell <laughs> and he was coming right at me. And I just stood there frozen as he came up to me and he stuck out his hand and he shook my hand and he said, nobody's ever called my son a scholar before. And I was like, <laughs> oh, Shazam, that was like such a formative moment for me. But you're right. It All it takes is a couple of minutes. That's all it takes. Just get to know both of your, and, and, your constituents, right? Yeah. And a little add on to that is try to communicate positives yeah. <laughs> and not just oh, Johnny didn't turn this in or yeah. so-and-so has, has been late every day. You know, they, they, it really, I found early on when I was making phone calls to parents, they were embracing for the blow. Yes. Okay, what did, what did they do? You know, and, and, and I found, okay, indicate something positive more so than anytime something's going awry. It really established that relationship I found, you know, we have, if they can participate, they can assist, help, so on. It's, it's really, it forms the, the bond that is, is true to effectively educate. Right, right. So going a little bit deeper, you, you talk about blending, quote unquote, almost in the way I've heard winemakers talk about blending grapes or chefs talk about, you know, mixing spices, which is really cool. So what is the blend, Eric, of relationships, project-based learning, and the dual process of you, the teacher, enjoying educating your students and students enjoying learning with you as if you're all on a team, on a journey together? Like why this blend? Why this special mix of these three spices that you described to me? 
What I love about the blend is it allows you to differentiate. It allows you to move around and apply what's needed in the moment by reading what the student needs because they're not all the same as we know, but it's a collaborative apprenticeship format between the facilitator and the learner. And that's what I really love about Wea is mm. the students and I, I'm a coach, I'm a facilitator, I'm an advisor. We're in this together. Yeah. <laughs> Their end product, it's a reflection of each and every one of the team members, the project members achievement. And so what we do is we work through problems, we solve challenges together, and it's not top down, it's not talk at. Yeah. It's real collaborative and I love the fact that students will come to project advisors right after a math class or a, or another class or project with excitement about something they learned through that math class that could apply yeah. to what they're doing in that pr in the project. Mm -hmm. And when you see that, oh Josh, that's <laughs> that's what, that, that's what it's all about. That's what we're here for and yeah. and I love that. And then I'll run with it and what I what we frequently the kids and I say is we geek out on stuff all all the time. Mm. And and they're they're asking me questions, I'm asking them questions and we learn from each other. And you have to give credit where credit is due. There's so many instances through the iterative process in a project where students will come up with an idea, a diagram, a philosophy, a strategy that I wasn't even anywhere near or thinking about. Right. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll want to test it, apply it, and, and see if it works. And, and through that, we, we, you can build a strong relationship that's something that as a student, I recall, was very exciting for me was to come up with an idea that my quote unquote teacher hadn't thought of. That was such a mar <laughs> marvelous moment, right? So that's great. So, so kind of staying along the same lines, Eric, some basic Googling led me to a, a wonderful piece written online for an organization called Charter School Capital. And the author, Yvonne Jane, the grandmother of Dion, one of your students at WEA, wrote about ways that you transform Dion from an introverted and learning-challenged young person into a growingly confident kid whose life trajectory had changed pretty dramatically. So I want to ask you, Eric, about Dion and his story. There's several questions that I've got lined up here. So first, Dion came to WEA and to you because his grandmother, Yvonne Jane, was concerned about his, quote, falling behind his peers in middle school. So how did you receive Dion? How did you assess, read his situation? And how did you develop a plan for building his confidence as a learner? Yeah, that's a, that's a great lead-in to assessments, which I utilize on a daily basis. And my diagnostic assessments of Dion, I was able to find some strengths, but also some areas where he was challenged. Mm. And 
I found I really wanted to focus on his strengths in hopes that it would build more confidence for the areas he was facing where he was having some challenges. And he needed some support in areas that every student needs support, Mm. organization, confidence. And I found that really just by connecting with him on areas of interest that might've been outside of some of his assignments, we were able to connect and build a little more confidence. And through that, I was able to, you know, really just have discussion with him and say, hey man, you really understand this well. And what we found was he has a really, really great strength of oral expression. Mm. I could go on and on and on. You you should have him on your podcast. (laughs) He could explain everything that he's doing, the math behind it, the history behind it, Mm. the physics behind it. And he was just having a little bit of trouble writing that down. Right. And so what we came to understand was that there's some tools that are at our disposal that we could use to get those ideas out. And then afterwards, we'd go back and, you know, do what the teachers expect and, right. and make sure we dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And it, it, was a, it was a great experience for me because through that, I learned with that young man. Mm. And I'm happy to say that now he's on a, he's on a trajectory to, you know, perform really well and make a good life for him outside post high school. Yeah. We'll come to that in a sec. And and I love the idea, Eric, that you went straight to the strengths, right? I mean, this is, this is the thing is what is this young person's what are these young person's strengths? And then you build off of that as you address the challenges. I think that's what I want our listeners to hear loud and clear. And the and the only way to do that is to engage and meet the young person where they're at, right? You have to get to know them. And you have to get to know, obviously, the family as well, right? Fair statement about that? Right, yeah. And through that, they were able to say, oh, you know, yes, he's really good at this, but through meetings, through parent interactions, a lot of times talk or discussion becomes about what they don't do well right? or, or, or something. And so what we found with, with that young man was, hey, let's, let's utilize these strength areas right. to overcome gaps in the challenge areas. And in a short period of time, I saw that young man's confidence increase And through that, he was able to express what his knowledge, what he has learned in other formats. And he's really become a leader. And honestly, it's, he's one of the students I I look at on a daily basis and I look forward to our morning interaction and, and, and discussion. Right. He he really makes my day. Wow. That's awesome. So Ms. Jane, Dion's grandmother called you in the article that she wrote or in the essay that she wrote, she called you, Eric, a gifted teacher, which is a totally natural thing to say, given what you did and what you've done with Dion. But I wonder what you think about such a distinction, given you know your fellow educators all have their gifts, right? And this gifted idea is, in my mind, kind of problematic in any field. And so I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, you know, for someone to say that, with so much experience in education, it really made me 
proud of, of the work I was doing. But at the same time, I'm just going in, strapping my boots, putting my lunch in my lunchbox and going to work. Right. And that, that, that was just my day to day. And, and I'll, albeit I love the appreciation I received from, from the family, but Dion did the work. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I said before, I just facilitated I, I, I led him to the pond that he drank, the water that he drank from. You know, this young man did all the work. And to see his resilience through areas of challenge, to overcome, he faced his fears. Yeah. And it took his bravery to do that. So yeah. I appreciate everything that, that she said, but it was all there. And that, that was through, through some assessment, we were able to see that he had what he needed to succeed there the whole time. Right. But for some reason, or it wasn't pulled out. And so all, all I did was kind of show him what he had living inside him yeah. and that he could utilize that to progress and, and achieve more in the academic environment. And he did it. He yeah. did it all. I love that. I love the fact that what, what we're saying is it's not that he's not, not that Dion is gifted, but that he has gifts and those gifts are strengths. And then you tap into those strengths and you build off of that. And it really is a much more nuanced way of looking at kids. It's so easy to label, you know, these kids are gifted and these kids are not. And it's just so, so lazy in a way. And so I love that. So I want to come at Dion one, you know, before we go to our second break, I want to come at it just one slightly different direction. The, the noted author, Chris Baum, and his book is called Finding the Magic in Middle School, and he's actually been a guest on this show. He talks about kids, Eric, in the transition from middle to high school, moving through three stages, belonging, achievement, and authenticity. And I wonder where Dion is now vis-a-vis -vis these three stages. Like, to what extent does he feel he belongs? He is achieving and has an authentic self that he loves and believes in. Yeah, he definitely found himself. And I, I do have to agree with that author because there is this transition period, you know, 12 to 14, where you can really see students trying to find themselves, trying to identify. And through some trial and error, hopefully they're, they're able to. But he definitely did. And through that, he was able to begin to achieve more academically. Mm. And he was living under the shadow of, of an older sister who academics came easy to her. Mm. And through that, he was able to, you know, look at her as a, as a model of what a student should be. But after finding himself, he was beginning to achieve mm. similar outcomes and now he's starting to progress and see himself as, well, you know what? Mm. I'm comparable to my big sis Wow! <laughs> in my academic prowess. Right. And it's great to see. And so now, as I said, he's, he's a leader. He's finding, he's found himself. He's confident. He's going around and teaching others. And Josh, if I may, that was, that's one area that a lot of, educators utilize. And I, I found this through a mentor that I had, mm -hmm. but if you're able to identify a, an area of strength and competency, just giving that student an opportunity to share that, to teach it to somebody else, 
it's truly empowering and yeah. you'll actually see them. And, and I'll go back to that nonverbal communication yeah. where you can look across the room and I'll see the student, you know, begin to stand more erect, yep. puff the chest out a little, the eye level rises and you really can see the confidence build up in that empowerment. And that, mm. that's a strategy and tool that, that many of us use at WEA that's second to none. Wow. And I really, yeah, really found with Dion that that helped him along. Oh boy, this is awesome. This is the kind of thing that, you know, I think our listeners really love is the specific examples of the ways that teachers and students interact with each other. And, and boy, the whole story of Dion sure inspired me, but I didn't know about the older sister because that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't in the essay. And that's so interesting. I mean, I have five older brothers and one older sister, and there are several that I lived under the shadow of until I started to find my sense of belonging, my sense of achievement and my authentic self, my Josh, right? And I think Chris Baum is really onto something here when he talks about that process. So I appreciate you walking through Dion's story with us. But, hey everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Eric Swenson. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. My name is Gabby Hathaway and I'm a teacher at WEA. I am new to teaching, but I am very familiar with the campus because I graduated from WEA in 2017. I started my journey at WEA way back in 2010, and I literally got to grow up with the campus. I believe WEA truly shaped me into the person I am today. Through project work and hands-on learning, I was able to ask more meaningful questions that I cared about that deepened my understanding of the content. WEA challenged me to become a lifelong learner and understand that failure is okay and you can grow from your mistakes. I am so grateful that I have the opportunity to continue to grow with WEA. Hey everyone, we are back with Eric Swenson, the Student Service Coordinator and Project Teacher at West Hawaii Explorations Academy, which is just outside of Kona on the island of Hawaii in the Hawaiian Islands. So Eric, WEA has been engaging learners for more than 20 years, but here in 2022, in partnership with Ben Owens and Open Way Learning, it is going through a reimagination process. In effect, it is attempting to redefine the way away. 
And I find this remarkable and inspiring, given that I never thought WEA, a demonstration charter school, needed to do this. I mean, I've been on your campus. I've, I've made a short film that included you, and I never thought that it would be necessary for WEA to go through this reimagination. So I have several questions related to this. So okay. folks at WEA have said to me that WEA kind of, sort of lost its way in the past few years. And is this a fair statement of, if yes, in what ways did it lose its way? The campus moved to a larger area. Mm. It expanded, took on more students, more staff. I wasn't a part of the school prior to this move. I, I came in once they were established at the new campus. But that's what I've heard as well. I found... Some areas of WEA, we're not perfect. No, 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 nobody's perfect. No school is perfect. Yeah. But the WEA way still lives, lives on, where our students are responsible practitioners of project-based learning. And through those projects, the heart, the soul of WEA still 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 lives there that mm. strength is there mm. and and I think what what my peers are are referring to is there's there's some conventional approach that it, that is applied here and there and it loses the way away from going indoors sitting inside having more technology more screen time mm. and through expanding and increasing our population what I hear from my peers is that we really lost our small student to teacher ratio mm. where you can connect and really progress through PBL. Although I should admit that we are at a 14 to one teacher to student ratio. That's pretty and good. In, yeah. And in one, in one tier it's 10 to one. So it's yeah. still, it's still pretty good, but that gives you an idea of mm. the prior campus where they had, they had a much smaller population. And so, Mm, yeah. It. So it was a real true connection for teachers and, and, and with a smaller ratio. Right. So what is your partnership with Open Way of Learning and what is that path forward to reimagining and redefining and redesigning the way away? It's been great having Open Way. Director Joe Greenberg has has facilitated their support and, and our go through this transition. And what I found with Open Way Learning, they have a similar philosophy approach as a WEA project mm. where it's iterative. They're disseminating information. We're absorbing that. And then they're, they're taking our feedback and there's still our strong skeletal system, our, our spine, if I may, yeah, and, and utilize that to improve so, you know, we've done the different activities, what's hot, what's not. I, I really appreciate how they value our feedback and what we desire as educators at WEA. And they, they want us to just continue to utilize what's already existing and try to come back in with a hurrah of, hey, look, you're doing a good job. Yeah. Here's a couple areas that if you're just able to revamp kind of highlight what you've done well in the past or, or what that currently exists, you can really transition, redefined. And I feel that we're going to come out of this <laughs> almost branded to where we used to be. 
Right. Yeah, it's super interesting because you, uh, and I'm very grateful for this, you and your colleagues invited me to come over to witness the first day of Open Ways program with you, if you will. I can call it that. I wouldn't by any stretch call it a training because that's not what they do. And it was awesome to watch how they spent Open Way, Ben and Adam spent the entire day working with the faculty who are coming back off of a summer break to get them to re-know each other, to get to know each other again. And it goes right back to what you've been talking about for the last, you know, 55 minutes is about building relationships from the beginning, right? And so then you move forward with the progressivism and the constructivism, as you talked about earlier, but it's the relationships that's that really matters. And so I want to ask about one specific thing that's happening at WEA as you go forward. And this is part of the re- reimagination. And I know that Ben and Open Way are engaging you with this. You have an eighth grade project called the Bridge Program, which sounds like kind of like an outward bound type concept, but in the way a way. So what is this project and what can our listeners learn from you and all that you're doing over there in Kona? Well, your listeners are going to be jealous. I wish they were back, they wish they were back in, in eighth grade. Oh. I could speak for, for myself and say, man, I really wish this was an opportunity I could have participated in. But we have a tiered vertical approach. Hmm. So sixth and seventh grade are, are in a tier one system, and they're, they're learning amongst each other. And then in eighth grade, it's called the Way of Bridge Program, where it's an outdoor experience, and it, it models the hero's journey. Mm. So I really, love, I really love the way my peers have taken this on and, and planned it all out, but they're attempting to really utilize the Way Away and incorporate outdoor adventure learning while continuing to you know, meet content areas and written demands mm-hmm. through this experience, this journey, and giving students this opportunity to, to truly disconnect from Wi-Fi, yeah, <laughs> disconnect, right. disconnect from their phones, yeah. their camp, their hiking, they're completing survival challenges on their own. They're they're exercising regularly. It's it's something I've never seen. And usually, you know, that age group where they're attempting to identify and find themselves, you know, they, they recluse into their phones or their technology, yeah. their social media. This approach, it's really eye-opening. And I can't wait to see, you know, the outcome of this class as they move into tier two which would be their first year in high school mm-hmm. through that epic journey and what they learn about themselves and the reflecting that they're doing after each adventure of their journey. And it's really interesting on how these guys then get to plan based on what they experienced and what they learned, the trips for the next group of students upcoming into the bridge program. So wow. it is, it is exactly what it's named yeah. It's a gap. It's a bridge from one tier to the next tier. And along that journey, you know, they're expected to bring what they learned into that following tier. Yeah. So I'm jealous. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I see them going on their excursions, packing up the vans. And then I see the excitement when the students return 
and they're unpacking and they, they, they want to tell you about what they, what they just went through. And, you know, it's a learning for all of them. I'm not sure how much of them have a lot of outdoor experience, but you should see the, the staff members that our administration chose to facilitate this program. And they're, they're, they're a perfect fit for not only the program's needs, but exactly what those students need to go through that journey together. Yeah, that's awesome, Eric. And, and there's so many things about this to love and be inspired by and to want to take action on. One of them has to do with, you know, this notion you just talked about, about the students, once they go through the journey, that they look back and they look at how you can reimagine the bridge that they just crossed and how it can be designed for the next group of people, the next group of students coming through. I'm reading a book right now called The Good Ancestor. And in effect, you're training them and guiding and coaching them, your peers, to be good ancestors, to not just go on the journey and never look back, but to think who's coming behind us and what can their experience be. And that's huge. That's really huge in terms of who you are as a human over the course of your life. So that's great. And yes, Eric, as I approach 100 episodes of this podcast, you can't even imagine the number of times where I said, ah, I want to be back in elementary school or I want to be back in middle school, you know. So that's great. So look, Eric, in your episode prep, you noted you have a moment with a disabled student you wanted to share. So what is that moment and what can our listeners draw from this story that you're about to tell? So student I was working with in middle school and he was having uh, he was having real difficult time expressing his his knowledge writing it down jumping through the hoops of turning in assignments executive function was was an area that he he really struggled in and he was almost handed off to me in a last ditch effort where educators were going I, I just don't know what else to do We've tried everything. And when him and I connected, I really saw in him that he, he had given up. He, he wasn't really sure or did, didn't really care mm. to move on, to jump through those hoops. We took a journey together. Mm. And throughout that journey, we had ups and downs. There was moments where <laughs> I thought of giving up. <laughs> yeah. he, he told me he wanted to give up, but there was a moment in about... I think when he was in 10th grade where he looked at me and it was a, it was a down day for my, myself. I was, I was disappointed. And he looked at me and he said, Hey, we got this. Mm. I'm going to turn this in today. It, it was a, it was a formative assignment that he needed to, to get in to earn significant amount of points. And I thought I had done everything and he wasn't going to make it. But when he said to me, we got this, Wow. And then he pulled through and turned it in. And then after his graduation, years later, he, he looked back. We, we talked at, at the ceremony and he said, I really appreciate everything that you did for me. Mm. There were so many educators in this young man's life. And to see him, his ability to reflect back and identify how many people 
it took, it helped him get through that journey together. And he he was really appreciative. And so those were a couple moments throughout his, his tenure that I'll never forget. It, It shaped me as the educator I am today. Yeah. You know, I don't know, this might sound strange, Eric, but in, in my mind, as you're describing this young person and as you're telling this story, my mind actually went back to Ocean Ramsey and some of the videos that I watched of her, you know, in deep water swimming with a large shark and thinking that in some ways you were the person with your hand very gently on the fin. You had read the situation, you were moving in a way that was non-threatening and you weren't threatened by him and that together you were kind of figuring each other out and how you would move forward together. I wonder if if that's a fair way of looking at that. Yeah, it's all cumulative. My my entire life from yeah. moving around. All the experience. Yeah. To the island, living on the North Shore out of my car for six months. It was yeah. a great time of my life. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and being able to to go in and identify, read a room, have decent timing. I wouldn't call it good timing or great timing, but having decent timing to where you can truly engage with a student and bring out a learner's strengths yeah. to utilize. But it is, it's similar going back to the aquatic environment. You, you know, you're outside of your comfort zone. Potentially you could be swimming in Waikiki and a, a five foot reef shark can swim by. Right. It's all about your your perspective and how you're non-verbally communicating in that moment. That's going to depend on how that animal responds to you. Yeah, that's a great story, Eric. Thank you. And so, you know, we're down at the end of this awesome conversation. I've got two more things I want to ask you. So I want to ask you, Eric, about two awesome moments in your life. One was a way a project of the year called Plastics for the People. And the other is that you were nominated in 2018 as a teacher of the year. And I would bet my wallet, Eric, that you feel a strong sense of achievement and pride about these. But I also bet, and I think I know now, that you walk on the humble side of the street. So what do these two distinctions, these two moments mean in the arc of the life of Eric Swenson? You know, the teacher of the year nomination, I was real hesitant and reluctant about that. Just being in education over the years and seeing how many great educators there are out there. Although it meant a lot, it it was, it was very humbling, but the project of the year plastics for people voted on by my peers, that meant the most to me Yeah, because Josh through that process, it was an engineering project where we were dismantling recycled materials, plastic materials, and trying to mold them into viable products. And through that, I was learning on the go with my students. We we were collaborating together as I would my fellow educators sitting around a room assessing students and evaluating data, you know, analyzing data we've collected to apply to our iterative process. But that project award, I was Oh man, that that made me feel the best because what I felt after that was an acceptance by my peers who have been doing this, Josh, much longer than I have. Right. And I'm learning from them, asking them questions here and there, going to them for their strengths. And it really, really aligned me with them and showed that 
okay, I have some, some skills to offer within this great environment and, and that my peers and I, you know, we're, we're all on, on similar playing field and we can help each other out. Cause I had a lot of help through that project as well. There's some teachers that I, I really lean on in, in some areas and, and I could, couldn't have done it without them, but it was, it was a, it was a great project. It's still going on and the students are in charge of it. They run the whole program. Mm. As I said, we just coach and guide through the process. Mm. That's, that's an awesome story, Eric. And I can, I can feel what you're feeling in this moment. I had something happen to me way back at the beginning of my teaching where I was given an award for technology and education. And when I had to talk about it, you know, my thought was to talk about all of the people upon whose shoulders I was standing that got me to that point. The IT directors at two different schools that supported me as I moved forward, you know. And I think that's really what it's all about is that that when these kinds of distinctions arrive, they're actually the product of a huge community of people. <laughs> and, you know, that's what moves us forward is that idea. And I, and I love that. And thank you for for sharing that with us. And so final question, Eric, and this is kind of full circle. It brings us right back to kind of the way we started this whole thing. You wrote to me about how years ago you worked with a teacher who replaced exhausting behavior and classroom management with something she called positive reinforcement. This is that moment here at the end of our conversation where we often shout out to the giants upon whose shoulders we stand. And so who is Emily Freeman? And what is this great gift she gave you many, many years ago? Wow. Emily, Emily was my mentor. Everything that I use today, I stole, borrowed, <laughs> learned from her. The, the resiliency, I watched her face mm. in the eye of a DOE storm mm. with the students that she was working with. It was amazing to see. Talk about a hero's journey. And her and I went through that journey together. And through that, she taught me valuable lessons that I'll, I'll never forget. I have a peer that I'm working with right now that also worked with Emily. And we, we, we talk about her frequently. And, you know, I'd like to, to come up with a term, what would Emily do? Mm, because there you go. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, in a moment, you know, where, where we, we need to, to push on, it kind of helps me go, okay, well, I, I believe Emily would, would apply this technique or try this. And she just taught me so much, Josh, that, hmm. you know, it was years, years and years ago, but I'll never forget it. She's a great human being. She's still on island. She's still in education. Hmm. And I'll never forget her. In fact, you're going to make me want to <laughs> send her a text message after this. But to see her philosophy still in the education system years later through many of us as those of us who apprenticed under her. It, it's remarkable. And I, I, I really commend her for all of her work that she's, she's done over the years. She's moved to the North Hawaii district, but mm. she's, she's still within our system and just a great human being. The way she was able to connect and reach with students and parents was, was second to none. And like I said, my foundation is based off of my time with her. Yeah. What I'd love the most about what you said 
is the idea that we exhaust ourselves when we try to manage other human beings, when we try to, to manage their behavior, and that her positive reinforcement approach is a way of meeting the young people that we work with where they are. And you've been talking about this for the last hour. And I think that's, you know, that's what really jumped out at me about Emily and why I love that phrase. What would Emily do? What would Emily do? She would start with positive reinforcement, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's who she is. Yeah. She, she had visuals all over her classroom for staff, not just students. And, you know, she would, she would tell us, Hey, you're not going to exhaust that behavior. You first have to replace it with a positive behavior. And through that, it really exemplified what it takes to be an educator because it wasn't as simple as, okay, well, this student does this behavior. I can replace that with a positive behavior today. Yeah. It's not that easy. And watching the work, the time that she put in and how she guided us, and then she, she, Josh, she let us go. She started to, to just hand us an issue, a problem, a challenge. Right. And then we would, we would have to work through it. And we would go to her as, a, as the guide, the coach, the advisor. And so it really brings me back to, to WEA, West Hawaii Explorations Academy, and how we approach learning. And that is as an, an advisor, as a, through an apprenticeship format where we facilitate and guide. Right. And we go through the journey along with our students the entire way. Right. And I think what that does, Eric, is it allows us to dedicate this particular episode to that concept and to think back of the work that you did with Dion and to think of the work that Emily did with you. And that's our dedication, our dedication, which is actually an action item. We dedicate ourselves to advising, guiding, mentoring, coaching, facilitating and that's the way forward. That's the way away. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's what we learn out of this whole thing. So, so Eric Swenson, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you. We hope that you and your family stay safe in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you again for spending this time with us today. Yeah, Josh, it was great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And I really appreciate your time. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music and musical interludes come from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. 
Friends, these are uncertain and challenging times. The headlines, especially around education, can be relentlessly negative. Please, bring kindness, compassion, innovation, creativity, and imagination into the world. We need a surplus of all of these right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho, and take care.